Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have an entrepreneur that is a full cycle entrepreneur, has been there, done it a few times now, and, and obviously he's a build, scale, financed, exited, so everything that you can think of. So without without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jason Springs. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. So born and raised in South Carolina. And obviously, you were there until your mid twenties. So, how was life growing up in South Carolina? So it was great. Uh, it, it's a lot different than where I live now, uh, out in in Silicon Valley. Uh, I grew up in a small town. Had a totally normal childhood. Um, I, I think the biggest thing I took away was, you know, having a a, a broader perspective than than you get living in, you know, just a, a city. It, it's great seeing, you know, a wide range of economic and uh and industrial views and and it's it's great having both coasts in my history very nice so obviously this uh, this business part i mean it seems that it's been quite there so i mean did you have anyone in your family that was say an entrepreneur or or how did you get that influence uh you know uh, it wasn't as much from from uh family it really came more out of some of my early work experiences i think the the industry I'm in, you know, I, I work in healthcare. I've been in healthcare for uh, almost 15 years now, and that was definitely a family influence. Uh, I think a lot of folks that end up in healthcare, they have a, a parent or loved one that's had some experiences. So, you know, that that I definitely took away. But I'm uh, I'm sort of the black sheep in the family uh, in, in an ironic way. I hear you. So, in terms of universities, so you went there to South Carolina once again. Uh, and then literally there, I mean, uh, you, you you went to work at a company that was uh, not far away and basically doing aircrafts and satellites. So tell us about this. Yeah, yeah. So so my my first job out of college um, was with Lockheed Martin. So uh, for, for the listeners, Lockheed Martin is a big aerospace company. They make airplanes, satellites, software. Uh, and, and that was... Uh, a really lucky break for me, especially as a, a freshly minted uh, college student. Uh, I got to jump into what was effectively a, a, a new startup inside a company. And uh, what we were building there was a, a new business for uh, uh, 
aircraft owners around the world to you know, buy replacement parts and services for their aircraft from distributors rather than going directly to the OEM. And you know, to make it more personal, if you have a car and you buy an OEM part, we all know it's really expensive. We go down to Pep Boys. And that was just a, a really amazing experience to see what it took to build a new supply chain, build data systems, and literally spend you know four or five years pitching customers in dozens of countries on, I think, every continent except Antarctica uh, about how to look at this new business in a regulated, very important area where you can't make mistakes. And and I got to work with dozens of small business owners. Many of the, the manufacturers we worked with had started their own companies. And that was, I think that's really where I started to get the the, the itch of, you know, building something myself and, and kind of learning what it meant to be in a big regulated market. And obviously there you are in your mid-20s. And at one point you decide that starting your own business is the way to go. So so how did you come, you know, to that conclusion? Yeah, yeah. So so one of the interesting things I think around um gosh, it was probably 2005, um I saw an, an internal memo at uh, at Lockheed that there was a new technology expo at Sandia National Labs. And uh so Lockheed Martin ran uh Sandia National Labs, which just a, it's a federally funded research lab. And um I took time off and volunteered to I, I think hand out flyers at the event. Uh, it's out in uh Albuquerque. And what it actually was, was a venture capital pitch event. And, you know, I'd been thinking starting a company would be really interesting. And I was like a kid in a candy store watching all these entrepreneurs on stage pitching venture capitalists. Uh, I think Tim Draper from DFJ was the, the keynote speaker. And I was immediately hooked, you know, just thinking that this, this is what I want to do. I want to take something new to the world and build a real enterprise around it and, and make the world better. And uh, the, the rest was history. There was no going back after that. I came home immediately uh, and I knew I needed to do two things. Uh, I needed to get a bit more experience uh, on some of the financial areas of, of managing a business. And I needed to find some business partners and some technologies. And um, you know that, that kind of spurred me into looking at uh, different MBA programs. Uh, because it was a nice way to get funding to learn about finance and go to the PhD programs and find some business partners. And that landed me at the Cornell Business School. And obviously there is where you met your co-founders, but, but obviously when you were there, I mean, I'm sure that you had some criteria or people that you think could be a fit or what that ideal team, co-founding team would look like. So, so what kind of framework did you have in mind? So, you know, it, was, it, it it definitely took a, a, a good amount of work to find the right partners. Um, you know, my, my past experience working in a, a very technical industry, you know, it gave me a, a very important framework for looking for technical co-founders because it is really critical when you have a new technology or a complicated business that both the business people understand and respect what it takes to build, you know, a, a new science or new technology. And the inverse is also true, that anyone who's building a new technology, they need to appreciate that there's just as much work and effort that goes into building an, an enterprise and ecosystem around it. Um, so, so that was a, a probably the most important framework 
that, you know, simply put, you need to have a cultural fit. Everyone needs to understand that each person is equally valuable, especially early on. The other one is, you know, you want to have, you want to have fun with these people. If you can, you know, you spend more time with co-founders than you may spend with your, your family. And, uh, you know, that there has to be kind of a, an initial culture there. So, um, that was definitely really important. I met a, a really, uh, really great entrepreneurship professor there. His name was Wes Sign, and he helped actually kind of uh, connect me and, and my uh, initial GeneWeave co-founders together. And, you know, the rest was history. We, we, we met, I think, the first month that I was there and have been working together ever since. So did the idea come before uh, meeting your co-founders or after you have met your co-founders? <laughs> You know, uh, startup ideas are uh, oftentimes an evolution. Um, so my, my two co-founders, uh, it's, uh, Diego Ray and Leonardo Teixeira, uh, so they were PhD students uh, there, I think in their third or fourth year of their PhD. And they had come up with the idea for a new technology, uh, but it really wasn't until about three or four months working together that we you know, figured out not just what the new technology would be, but what was the best way to use it to improve, you know, it was a healthcare technology. So to improve, you know, patient outcomes in a, in a way that actually could be funded by a, you know, outside venture capital or, or private funding group. Um, so it was, it was a, a collaborative uh, organization, a collaborative effort. And so then after, obviously you come up with the, with the concept, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in Silicon Valley. So I guess the question here is, why did you move to Silicon Valley and what also ended up being the business model of GeneWave? Yeah, so, so I mean, it, it also, it definitely the story goes back to, you know, the, the times we were living in. Uh, so, you know, we started, uh, we started GeneWave, at least the, the three co-founders came together and, uh, you know, we were all there in 2007. And as I mean, most people know, 2007 to 2008 was uh, at least a minor dip in the economy. Um, and so, you know, right around 2009, when I was graduating and we were getting ready to, to spin the company out, we realized that raising money would still be a, a pretty big challenge. Um, the East Coast, especially the New York area uh, around, which is where Cornell is, um, got hit a little extra hard because it was uh, certainly a financial crisis, uh, among other things. And we knew that if we wanted to raise money, we needed to go where the ecosystem for healthcare investment would be in place. Uh, and that kind of left us looking at Boston and Silicon Valley. One of my co-founders lived in Palo Alto. And so like a lot of good startups, you go where there's a couch to sleep on until you can raise money. And, uh, and that's what we did, you know, moved out, uh, to the Bay area here and started pitching and pitching and pitching. Uh, I think we must have gone through 50, 60, 70 pitches before we, we landed our first term sheet. So were you, and, and, and before we actually go into, into what, what actually were some of those reflections to optimize the pitch and, and end up landing the, the first day around, what were you pitching? I mean, what, what was that concept? Yeah, so, so GeneWeave was a medical diagnostics company. And what, uh, what my co-founders had invented was really a new, you know, basic technology to detect bacteria. 
And that, that was really important. You know, if you think about people in a hospital getting sick, one of the most important things you want to figure out is, does this patient have an infection? And if they have an infection, which drug will work, which antibiotic should be used? And what we were effectively pitching is we had a new technology that could uh, detect bacteria much faster than traditional technologies in hours rather than days or weeks, and that it had a very unique capability of telling you when a particular drug you cared about uh, would or would not work. And, and this was becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Uh, you know, a lot of people now are aware of antibiotic resistance. And, you know, back in 2008, 9, and 10, that was something that was becoming a big public awareness um, then, and it had not been so, so well known in the past. And so we were solving that problem. And the business model at the end of the day was make diagnostic tests, get them approved by the FDA, and sell them to hospitals, which would be our, our primary customers. So, so and, and thank you for that, Jason. So I guess going back to what you were mentioning, so you talk about 50 pitches to be able to land your, your investment. Your, your first day, you know, early stage type of investment. So why do you think it took so long? Why so many pitches? You know, um, <laughs> so it's a, always a, a, multiple things going on at the same time. So first, you know, we were in a tough business. So diagnostics had historically been a, a tough business for venture capitalists to make money on. Um, we were coming out of a, a very large recession uh, and many of the venture investors still had not recovered from that. Many of their limited partners hadn't recovered. And we were new. You know, we were a brand new team uh, with no healthcare experience, pitching a brand new technology that had never been tried before to be used in a brand new way uh, by a set of customers that are, are, you know, they're enterprise customers. Hospitals are, are tough to sell to. And, you know, it it probably looked very risky to a lot of investors, um, but you know we we learned one of those key entrepreneurship lessons that you only need one yes. You just keep going until you you get to that yes and and build from there. So, did you optimize anything on the pitch as you were going and you were doing your pitches and seeing maybe some holes or applying some of the feedback, or you just went with the same pitch to all the fifty until you got the money? I must have 300 versions of that pitch, you know, every <laughs> single, <laughs> I, I still have an old file of all these, uh, all the pitches and, you know, you learn a little something from each question that's asked. Um, you know, usually you're, you're just figuring out what, what are those holes and how do you, how do you deliver confidence to the, the, the person that's listening to you? Because, you know, it, it's very difficult from the outside to understand, you know, all these new concepts all at once. So, Definitely modified the pitch. And, and one of the really important things we learned was make sure you find a set of investors that have a history of doing the types of deals that, that you represent. I think that was, you know, a, a very, we were very naive at the time, you know, pitching to anyone that would meet with us. Um, you know, by the end, we were very focused on finding, you know, experienced diagnostic investors. And that's a very important point that you make because Many entrepreneurs, and I'm sure that many of the people that are on the line, maybe what they're doing is just throwing a spaghetti on the wall and seeing any investor that they can. And probably what they don't realize is that it's all about the investment thesis and grabbing people to optimize for their time and a potential investment that have to do with their domain, that have to do with their financing cycle, and also with their geographic location. So that's what Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that that's a that's a tough lesson to learn if you, if you don't listen to it. So uh, your your listeners are getting a lot of value out of that right now. So so how much capital did you guys raise uh, in total for Gene Weave? So uh, the first first uh, round was a million dollar seed round. Over the the course of the company, we brought in uh, about twenty five million dollars over a, a series seeds uh, seed A and B. Um, and built the company from, you know, effectively a, an idea on a napkin, I guess maybe on a PowerPoint slide eventually, and some early proof of concept technology to, uh, you know, 40, 50 people, uh, two, two facilities down in Los Gatos, which is uh, on the way to Santa Cruz. And, um, you know, that, and, and then ended up having uh, an, an exit. You know, we, we ended up getting the interest of a, a number of different uh, healthcare companies in, in 2015, which, turned into an acquisition by Roche. And obviously, first company, first exit, and, and quite an exit too, Jason. So tell us about, you know, how this acquisition or inbound interest started to form, and then what ended up being the process that led to a $425 million exit. Yeah, so so we've been building the company up. You know, in 2010, we were, you know, we were a true seed company, building out, you know, initial laboratory work by... 2014, we were building um, the systems that would be, you know, taken through FDA trials. And, you know, what what our technology and our, our products more more than our technology really did was, you know, we were solving the the problem that hospitals had of figuring out who might have a drug resistant infection, and most importantly, figuring out what in the world would actually treat it. And that particular question, that, that clinical challenge had become publicly very large. In 2014, the World Health Organization and the CDC uh, basically announced that drug-resistant infections were the greatest threat to modern healthcare. And, uh, you know, like any big win in, in uh, the startup world, a little bit of luck is always involved. So that kind of public awareness I think drew a lot of eyes towards the work we were doing. In 2014, we had publicly launched the company. We started showing up at the, the important trade shows and a number of different diagnostic companies uh, started approaching us at literally walking up to us at our booths and saying, Hey, you know, would you be, would you be interested in talking more? And, uh, you know, I learned in hindsight that meant, Hey, I'm interested in acquiring your technology or company. So let, let's, Let's see if there's something there. And, uh, you know, we, we found a number of different interested parties. And over, you know, I'd say about a year period, we talked to a number of different firms. But, you know, we, we really resonated with the, uh, the, the, the group at Roche. It's, it's Roche Molecular, the uh, group that's actually out here in California. And, you know, we started a process. We, we hired a, an investment bank uh, to help us you know, make sure that we were presenting to all the different uh, interested parties kind of in parallel. Um, I hate to make it sound so simple, but it's similar to how you might want to sell a house. You know, you want to make sure that you line everyone up so that all the same amount of interest and information happens at the same time. And, you know, that led to an enormous amount of technical and organizational due diligence by, by Roche. And in late summer, I think it was around August of 2015, you know, the, the conclusion was made that, you know, what we were building 
uh, had the potential to fill a really critical gap that the that company's current product simply couldn't couldn't meet. And that's when the acquisition uh, occurred. And you know they were a great partner. Uh, they they hired all of our employees, and uh, you know we we transitioned over to, to working as full-time Roche employees. And did you, did you ever encounter any of those 49 investors that rejected you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I talk to them all the time, and uh, maybe a, a, an important lesson I learned out of that, uh, some of my most important connections now are people that didn't just tell me no once, uh, that told us no maybe two or three times. Um, some of my best advisors are people that just said, no, you're not the right fit for us. Uh, so yeah, I uh, talk with these folks all the time and, and we, you know, maybe, uh, it, it's, it's good to see, you know, even people that said no, will celebrate a success and it's, yeah. it's actually a pretty good community. That's amazing. So, so obviously here you go now, uh, you're part of a bigger organization of Roche and there you are doing the vesting and resting and you do it for a couple of years. <laughs> And then eventually, it comes to the point, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, and you decide it's time to go at it again. So tell us. Oh, about. yeah, it is. Uh, boy, once you get the bug, it's it's hard to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> I, I will I will challenge the the resting. I don't think I'm capable of resting. We, we all uh, <laughs> we're all working pretty hard for for those few years. But uh, yeah, you know, you you get the itch to to work in a startup area, and you know, we love the folks at Roche. But I was you know still looking, you know, what 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 would the the next big thing be? And um, you know, a couple a couple of really interesting things happened around 2015. So. So we were acquired and we transitioned into Roche and, you know, like any, anyone in the healthcare field, you pay attention to other big deals too. And at the same time that Roche bought GeneWeave, they bought two other companies that are more in the oncology space. And uh, one was called Flatiron Health and one was called Foundation Medicine. And, uh, you know, what those companies did is, you know, they Flatiron built software, Foundation Medicine built tests. But, you know, at a, at a higher level, they enabled clinicians to use broad sets of digital and biological information about patients to personalize cancer therapy and to figure out what are the right new therapies to make. And, you know, we, I watched those two companies and kind of what they were doing while I was at Roche and traveled the world, you know, just looking at the, the doctors and patients that, you know, we were targeting and realized, wow, you know what, the, the real problem, you know, we were just at Gene, we've just scratching the surface of a much bigger problem of, you know, figuring out how to personalize care in hospitalized patients. And by the time, you know, about two years had passed, I, I was convinced that that was, that had to be the next big area. That was the 10 or hundred X bigger problem I wanted to go solve. And, uh, and that's when, you know, I left in 2017, uh, took a little bit of time off, uh, had a, had my first child, uh, and then, you know, my, my co my now co-founders, uh, who were at, at Roche as well also left, uh, you know, a little bit later than I did. And we all got together and said, yeah, this is, this is what we have to do. And, and that was how Endpoint Health ended up starting. You know, we wanted to build the ability to 
personalized therapy in you know really critically ill patients and bring new targeted therapies, new personalized therapies onto market. And that was just this massive open need that we wanted to go and solve. And here it's a very interesting shift because here you go at it with your same co-founders from your uh, previous business. So I think that that was obviously a brilliant move because you you all know each other very well. And and the biggest decision that you make is is who you choose to go with in the journey. But but here you went from from being more on the marketing side on the on the previous company on Gene Weave to now being you know as part of of endpoint more on the CEO seat. So how, how did that transition, you know, come about? So, you know, we, we had all learned an enormous amount about what it took, not just to, you know, build a new startup, but to transition it all the way from, you know, those early, you know, when there's two or three people in a room all the way up to an FDA approved product, you know, by, by 2017, 2018, and, you know, we knew we wanted to work together and that, you know, we had this vision of what the right company would be. And, you know, it was kind of a, <laughs> maybe we looked at it kind of like a heist film where we all brought a certain set of skills to the table and, you know, figuring out how, what the right products were and how to bring the right people in was something that I brought to the table. My, my co-founders had a deep amount of experience building technical and operational teams. And we also ended up bringing in uh, a fourth co-founder who, uh, by total total happenstance, had uh, been a classmate of mine in business school who was a deeply experienced software uh, and analytics developer. And it was just the right fit for each of us. You know, we all brought in, you know, a unique gift. Um, and at the, the, the highest level, uh, mine was storytelling for the company, you know, really communicating the, the scale and importance of what we were doing and, and how we would go and do that. And, and that, at the end of the day, the role of the CEO is, you know, find good people, create a vision and get the resources those people need to execute. And, and that's what we set off to do. So in terms of, for example, like building, building the team, because I'm sure that, that you got quite a bit of, of, of learnings, no, from not only building GeneWeave, but then the integration process and then now being part of a much larger organization at Roche and really, again, continuing to experience those relationships, the structure, the way things are organized and even more now at a larger level. So now going from small to large and then now to small again, how did you think uh, perhaps differently around building your team? How did you think about it in a way that perhaps you didn't think about when you were building GeneWeave? Oh, wow. It's totally different. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the lessons learned are, are pretty big, especially when you're dealing with a, a complex regulated environment. I think one of the biggest things that, that we did, right. Uh, you know, there are two big changes right off the bat. One is when we look at building teams, you know, right from the start that there's going to be different stages of the company. Um, as you move from, your initial idea at a round table to having your first five to 10 employees working on mostly research and then shifting into development and commercial stage. And one of the things that gets missed a lot, especially in, in technology, you know, deep technology focused companies is understanding that it's, it really takes different personalities to, to excel at those, those different stages. And it's not about intelligence. It's more about finding the right fit. And, 
you know, we worked very hard from the beginning and, and even right now we have, the, we have these discussions every day on how to structure our team today and how we're going to grow it to one that can scale and produce new technologies at a rapid rate, um, but also at a manageable, uh, a manageable scale. You know, you have to bring the right people in at the right time and have them working on the right tasks. Uh, and until you've seen it done once, it's, it's pretty hard to get that right. Very cool. So in terms of culture, how do you think about culture then? Uh, that's, uh, that's funny. Uh, actually our, our, every time we interview someone, you know, we, we basically tell the, the folks, you know, we're looking for 50% technical skills and 50% culture, um, building, building new, you know, therapies or healthcare products can be a, a multi, very long process uh, in some cases, although we have, a, we think an accelerated way to do that. And so, you know, it's, it is the team and how cohesive they are all working together that, that gets it through. Um, you know, just, just like I, I uh, was looking for people that understood and appreciated talents outside of what they had when we were founding GeneWeave, we do the same thing at Endpoint Health. Um, I think we, we just focus on culture. Maybe it's 60-40 now, uh, especially as you have a more distributed environment during you know, COVID-19 where you've got to work together at all kinds of crazy hours across video. You know, it, it takes a, a lot more work to keep the team cohesive. So in terms of uh, raising capital here, how did you guys go about raising money? So, you know, we, we were lucky enough um, to have built a network of different investors uh, that we talked to on a pretty regular basis. And, you know, what, what really happened for our first round of financing at Endpoint Health was we met a uh, couple of folks at uh, the Mayfield Fund. And we, we met them through some of the connections that my other two co-founders had. Uh, they were both visiting partners at some startup incubators, uh, one called uh, Y Combinator. Um, and, you know, the, the, the way we ended up meeting together was just a connection of a connection of a connection. And it kind of goes back to keep, be nice to the folks that tell you no and keep meeting more, more people because, you know, we ended up, uh, just kind of talking about our ideas at a high level with uh, our, our main partner at Mayfield. And he became so you know excited about the idea of really building a new category of medicine in, in you know, an un, untapped area of healthcare, which is, you know, mostly hospital care that, you know, the round kind of came together without us actually planning to go and officially raise a round of financing. And, you know, that firm, they were just the right firm at the right time. They had helped build giants like Genentech and Millennium Pharma and also small companies like Lyft. Um, and, you know, it was just the right deal at the right time. And we were excited to take it. And still, you know, it's, it's one of the best decisions we made. So then tell us what, what does the future hold for Endpoint? I mean, if you were, let's say, to, to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized, maybe you wake up in, in five years and tremendous news, right? And you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized. What does that world look like? So the best way to, to see what that world looks like is to think about what it is today and how it'll transform. Um, you know, so, so Endpoint Health is, it has two, two main abilities we want to make real. And, and one is we want to enable doctors in intensive care units to 
personalized therapy to their sickest patients. And we want to bring new therapies and put them in the hands of those doctors. And, and the way to do that is, is precision medicine. It is looking at lots of data about these patients and figuring out who are the subgroups of patients that need you know, a specific cocktail of therapies. Today, there are no approved therapies for some of the biggest killers in the intensive care unit, things like sepsis. And if you look on the nightly news, you'll see uh, examples of people dying from critical infections like sepsis and respiratory failure every day because that's what COVID-19 causes. So we're sitting here hoping that, you know, with our help, five years from now, we will have shifted the, way, the, the standard that people use to care for patients in intensive unit, care units around the world from a one-size-fits-all method of giving existing therapies and developing new therapies to personalized therapy should be the, the way that all patients are cared for with a fleet of new therapies being developed uh, for use in our sickest patients with things like sepsis or pneumonia or uh, COVID-19-induced uh, infections. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're well on our way to do that. Um, of all things, uh, the, the current pandemic, you know, for many companies, it slowed things down. For, for those involved in areas like telemedicine or directly working on new therapies for, for very sick patients, it has been an unbelievable amplifier uh, to accelerate research and development and partnerships. And so we, we think it's a, an achievable vision and uh, we're very excited to, to go after it. Nice. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with, with that younger Jason, maybe that younger Jason that was in Cornell, finally got you know his buddies, finally got that band together to do something, uh, and and if you had that opportunity to have a, a chat there and 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 say something to that younger Jason, maybe like one one thing about perhaps launching a business, knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself, and why knowing what you know now? So you know, one thing that I think the the me at that point could have done much much better is reach out for mentors. You know, find. Find people who have built and sold a company in your area or close to your area that can give you a bit of guidance. Because when you go out, especially for your first time and you build a new business, the, the amount of pressure you put yourself under is just enormous. And, and it feels like there are a million problems that all must be solved perfectly. And, you know, what you learn in hindsight is there's really a subset of, you know, 10, 20, 30% of the, the types of problems that you're thinking about that are really going to matter for raising new financing. And, you know, if you get the right coaches who can help guide you along that, uh, and maybe, you know, listen to the right podcast that can help guide you as well. Um, you know, you really can do two things. You can lower a lot of anxiety and you can focus more acutely on the things that are really going to drive value and accelerate your fundraising. And I think that's, that, that's something I would have told myself. And I still tell myself that every day, you know, it's, it's a continuous lesson to learn. Very profound. So Jason, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? 
You know, the, the I think the best way would be uh, reaching out on LinkedIn. That that's where most of our communications go out. You can find me. It's Jason Springs uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, send me a note. Would love to hear from you. Um, and you can follow us on our, our website as well, endpoint.help. And uh, yeah, we'd we'll lo- lo- love to hear from interested folks. Amazing. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.